The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. For decades, the Master of Fine Arts degree has quietly dominated the American literary scene. There are now over a hundred programs where professors and students go about the business of turning dreams into fiction through the alchemy, or as some would say, the meat grinder, known as the writing workshop. It's a phenomenon like no other in the history of literature. What goes on at these MFA programs? What good comes out of them? And what impact are they having on contemporary American literature? The president of the Literature Supporters Club joins us for a discussion of MFA programs today on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So we're actually, we're going to post this on the 4th of July, which I thought is fitting because our topic today is really about the state of American letters in some sense. And Mike, you have an MFA, I have an MFA. Let's share some thoughts, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I will let you go first. So I was thinking that MFA programs are have gotten pretty darn hard to get into. Mm. I was I was reading a, an article about MFA programs, and I always say the New York Times is about six months behind anything that's uh, interesting or hip, or so. Right. When they, so they they had an MFA article that I read, and they said that last year Iowa Writers Workshop, which is probably considered the the most famous MFA, the best MFA program in the world mm-hmm. in, in in the U.S. Sorry, mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to U.S. versus Europe, but uh, they had thirteen hundred applicants for fifty. 50 slots. Wow. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that's kind of like college applications where just the internet and the ease of finding things out and, and applying makes the numbers of applicants increase. Although certainly there do seem to be a lot more people going to get MFAs. I've got some statistics here that will really put this in perspective. So it's MFA programs founded by decade. Uh-huh. So in the 1920s, there were zero. In the 1930s, there was one, which was <laughs> Iowa. Um, 1940s and 1950s, there were zero. And then in the 1960s, there were 11. 1970s, there were 11. 1980s, there were 27. So up to this point, through the end of 1989, we were at 50, round total. And then in the 90s, when I got my MFA and people were already talking about things just being saturated and there were too many programs and there weren't enough good professors and students to fill that many programs, et cetera, et cetera. There were 41 uh, launched just in the 90s. In the 2000s, there were 94. And so far in the 2010s, we're on pace to have 132 new programs this decade. So they really are ballooning. So the idea that, uh, you know, a single program, you'd think they would all be uh, scrambling to get applicants and and maybe some of them are, but certainly uh, those people who aren't getting into Iowa 
have a lot of other choices of places to go. Yeah, I, I was going to say that programs are selective, but I wonder if they're selective enough because another statistic I came across is that 4,000 people last year graduate, graduated with an MFA. Wow. Okay, so let's let's talk about, well, let me jump into my first thing, and then we can maybe talk about some of the features of the MFAs and, and get to the impact that we think they're having. So, and my first thing that I jotted down was the reason why I went. And what happened was, uh, like a lot of people, I probably fell in love with literature at some point in my childhood or as a teenager, or I don't know when exactly it happened. I always loved to read. And then you make this transition where you think, oh, I would, I, I would really enjoy writing and I, I think I could be a writer. And you, you kind of take that step. And then I looked around and I looked at all of my heroes and what they did when they were, you know, 20 or, or 22. And a lot of them had a sort of apprentice phase mm -hmm. and they would find, um, depending on the culture, you know, some cultures, it was going to work at a publishing house and you meet authors that way. Some people would work at a newspaper. That was kind of the biggest one for Hemingway and Fitzgerald in that generation that we looked at. They would, you'd, you'd go to work at a newspaper and you'd find other writers there. In some places it's, you know, patrons or, or letters of introduction. And for us, uh, and this is in the nineties, I looked around and said, you know, where are people finding other writers, real writers, professional writers, published writers, writers who are willing to be mentors? And it was really just in the MFA program. That was kind of the only place where I could see where you could just find somebody and and hitch yourself to them and learn at their feet for a couple of years and, and see what the business was all about. And, you know, I, I did have a list here. I made a list of... Uh, things that MFA programs are, are bad at and things that they're good at and things that they are sometimes good at and sometimes not good at. And when I was thinking about this first topic of why I went, uh, which was, you know, looking around and looking for mentors, I thought of all the things that MFA programs are bad at because I don't want to suggest that uh, MFA programs are any sort of key. You know, every time I, I think about the positive aspects, I think, well, there are some misconceptions, and mm -hmm. uh, we should probably try to dispel some of those. So, obviously, well, oh, go ahead. Maybe before you get into that, uh, Jack, you should talk about, in case people are not familiar with an MFA program, you know, maybe just briefly go over like what the workshop is. Right. So this was a, <clears throat> excuse me, this was an interesting question that I was going to put to you: is whether you think there is such a thing as a an archetypal workshop since these MFA programs are really revolve around the workshop. And I'll, I'll go ahead and posit one and you tell me if you think I'm getting some of the details wrong, but I think generally the most common form of a workshop is 10 or, or 12 students, maybe a group about that size who have an instructor the instructor is a professor. And one of the students or a couple of the students will submit stories that week to discuss. And then maybe the, the professor will come in and, and maybe talk a little bit about craft or maybe give maybe a writing exercise or, or something or talk about sometimes, you know, my professors would talk about a, a famous short story or a poem that they wanted to go over or something like that. And then we would jump in and everyone would have read the story in advance or the poem. If you're in a poetry workshop, they would have read it in advance. And then basically the point of the workshop is you are offering uh, criticism or, or, you know, constructive criticism or feedback of some sort. And together, you know, the author usually sits there listening to other people talk about what the story means or what they got from the story and some suggestions for how they would fix things or, you know, maybe a, a more harsher critique than that. You know, this, this doesn't seem like your heart is really in this, or this doesn't seem like what you should be writing about. And, and then, um, the author sort of absorbs all that criticism and people maybe give them him or her, uh, written comments as well. And then maybe the professor might weigh in with some, some sage words of advice and maybe a critique of his or her own of the story. And then 
that's that person's week. And then the following week you go on to the next person in the class. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's a pretty good description. I would say that there tends to be a, uh, there's a strong tendency to be nice. Mm -hmm. Um, occasionally you get somebody who's critical and I feel like the thing about a workshop is it not only is the, the person who's writing is being critiqued, critiqued, but people, anyone who says anything opens themselves, opens themselves up to critique, mm -hmm. which I, I, I found to be very strange. That's the right. Kind of, the kind of side battles. Yeah. People really turn on each other and they sort of say, you know, they will defend the author or they will say, well, right. I disagree with what you know, this person said, and then it ends up being about people's ability to criticize or to offer any sort of valuable advice. Right. So, so two things um, stand out for me when I think of a workshop is the, the idea that you could take 30 pages of someone's writing mm -hmm. and just tear it apart. Right. <laughs> so, so the way I like to think of it is just take 30 pages of you know, Dead Souls by Gogol. Right. And, and 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 read it and just be like, did that blow you away? Maybe. Mm. Maybe a part of it would, but maybe you would find ways to say, you didn't tell me enough, which is, you know, a very common right. workshop comment. Um, or I really like this person, but then I wasn't very you know, I didn't feel as much sympathy as I did at the start. Yeah, right. <laughs> I lost interest or yeah, I thought it started slow or yeah, you, you really could take 30 pages. And in fact, I'm jumping ahead to my, uh, I think I had this as number three, but I had this, this really unusual experience where, you know, I had a workshop and it was the same group of people and we met, you know, three semesters in a row. And so by the wow. end of it, you really have heard, uh, kind of, you, you feel like you can anticipate each other's comments. And so one of the things we did to break it up, and I think this was actually the workshops idea is we thought for the beginning part of the session, what we should do is take turns bringing in something that everyone would read. Like you could bring in, you know, a story by Kafka or something. And then we would all start out and we would be talking about that. So we weren't just talking about each other's work. Uh, That's all a good the time. idea. Yeah, I thought so. And then somebody made the comment as we were talking about whether or not we should do this. Somebody said, well, we're all just going to bring in stuff that everybody loves. Nobody's going to take any chances. No one's going to, everyone will just bring in all the safe people to bring in. And so we went around the room and somebody said, well, who would a safe person be? And then they said, well, you know, like everyone will just bring in Kafka. And then there was a guy who said, you know, I've never liked Kafka. <laughs> and, you know, somebody else said, oh, well, you know, Chekhov. We'll bring in Chekhov. Somebody, everyone will just bring in a Chekhov story. And then someone else is like, you know, I've never really liked any Russian authors. And <laughs> we, so then we kind of spent, you know, the next 10 or 10 minutes or so trying to find a writer that everyone in the class could agree on right and you know we're you're trying jane austen and alice monroe and juno diaz and ralph ellison and you know who could object to these people tolstoy you know but it was it we we could not find an author there was always somebody who said just never gotten into that person and you know and so i i don't think anybody was was trying to yeah, I think everyone was being sincere. I don't think anyone was trying to sink the project or anything. Uh -huh. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, what chance does my story have of, you know, gaining unanimous consent when, <laughs> you know, we've named every conceivable person and nobody is eight for eight? You know, if Toni Morrison is not eight for eight, then what's my story? You know, and it, it really kind of, makes you think and this can be a good thing or a bad thing for some people that could really destroy your confidence because you're going to bring things in and there will just be people who don't like it and yeah. other people will say well you know that's what that's the good thing about an mfa program is it will thicken your skin that a workshop teaches you how to absorb criticism which you're going to get if you're if you keep at this uh you'll get rejections you'll get bad reviews you'll get people who don't like your work 
And the MFA is a good place to start training yourself to be able to absorb that. Yeah, I, I had a teacher. I, w- I would say uh, on balance, um, all of my teachers were just extremely uh, into hand-holding the students. But mm-hmm. I had one teacher who is kind of a prick, and um, he said the the workshop is to... The, the, the most important thing of workshop is 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 rejecting 90% of what people say mm-hmm. and figuring out what which 10% you should listen to. Because right. he said if you actually listen to what everyone was saying, your work would be horrible because right. it, it would just be conf- just contradictory. It you'd is, be, yeah. You'd be listening to the person on the left and then the right. Yep. So, some people say make it shorter. And some people say make yeah. it longer. It's... That's yeah, exactly so, right. So his class was hilarious because instead of going around and people kind of like, you know, being afraid to be honest, I, I find that, and maybe, you know, you shouldn't be that honest. I mean, writing is, is a very vulnerable thing to do. Um, but he used to sometimes say, yeah, that story, um, I think you should put it away and just start um, a new story. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I think that's what sometimes needs to be said. You know, we, we shouldn't be, you know, fumbling about trying to make sense of these characters if we just, you know, think the story, the person has a better story in them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think it's hard because for every example of that, you get another example where you think someone is saying that and they're just wrong. You know, it's even... Right. Even with the teachers, even the professors who are the gurus, their opinion is their opinion. You know, they don't always see the merits of a story. And in particular, uh, I think this is maybe not so clear to people who come to a workshop all the time. And, you know, they're very uh, tilted toward uh, literary fiction and maybe literary fiction of a certain kind. And if somebody comes in and they're writing in a maybe a broader style, let's say, uh, like a, a Stephen King. Um, right. You know, if if that's their if that's the kind of fiction you love to read and love to write, you know, it's the, the good professors will take that on their own merits and say, what is the story trying to do, and and understand that different genres will work in different ways. But if you're just somebody who's maybe on the edge and you're kind of writing in that middle ground. Uh, sometimes those people just get hammered in, in workshops and, and then you think they're probably actually could be the most successful of anybody here, you know, in terms of being able to sell books. Yeah. I I remember a couple of workshops at the end where somebody got just torn apart. And, uh, afterward I heard somebody going over to that writer and saying, you know what? I think your stuff is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought that this, that really sums up workshop. <laughs> <laughs> right. That one, there was one person that who's, you know, the writing really touched that person. Yeah. yeah. So let me, let me go through my knots. Okay. Um, and this is just a, this is sort of a, uh, uh, what's the word when you're, these are straw men arguments. I just don't want anyone to, uh, either if they're applying to workshops think you know maybe i want everyone to go in with their eyes open but also i just want to get this out of the way so that people don't uh criticize this episode by pointing out some things that i think are fairly obvious if you really think about it so getting an mfa is not a guarantee of publication it's not even necessarily the best way to find agents or publishers. You can do all of this outside of a workshop. There's no, there's nothing magical about a workshop or nothing required or mandatory about uh, a workshop. It is maybe not even uh, the, well, it's certainly not the only way to find like-minded students or maybe not even the best way to do so, especially in the internet age. I think people can probably form writing groups and and critique groups and things like that and find people who share their interests and share their sensibilities. It might be easier to do that than to do than to apply to an MFA program and kind of take the the luck of the role of who's going to be in the class with you. It's uh not great at career development. 
uh, finding jobs. And, you know, I kind of thought when I got there that there would be this whole pipeline of jobs where people would, you know, that the university would have this sort of structure in place where they would think, well, everybody who's graduating from here, maybe there aren't going to be tenure track professor jobs for everyone, but there will be uh, publishing jobs or advertising jobs or jobs for creative people or writer, you know, jobs for people who write or uh, tech writing or, and there really wasn't that, you know, the professors mm-hmm. just kind of threw up their hands and said, well, you know, you're, you're kind of on your own. What did you do before you came? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing I have, which is a, a common critique and Juno Diaz has really brought this to the forefront, especially recently is it's not a good place uh, like I said, it's sort of the luck of the draw who you get, and it's not necessarily a good place to find a, a wide diversity, either mm-hmm. among the fellow students or the types of writing. Um, it can be, you know, tilted toward the upper middle class, and it can be tilted toward college graduates who went to, you know, fairly uh, elite schools for undergrad. And it, it's, it's, I, I take all of that. Um, as you know a real uh caveat for people who are thinking of attending is is it it might be a real issue for people if you're in there with a group of people who are not only disinclined to like your fiction but you know sort of would never extend themselves to like the the kind of things that you're writing about yeah i'll I'll play devil's advocate and just say that it was two of the happiest years of my life Ah. and uh i think if you have the money or you can go to a fully funded program there are a number of fully funded mfa programs which basically means they don't accept you unless they can give you a full scholarship right Um, and so you know there are people in at my mfa program who kind of drove me insane Mm -hmm. and there were probably about three or four people who I've stayed in touch with whose writing I like, but also who I just got along with. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I agree that it's it's getting easier to meet people, but there's something about um, the extension of college. Yep. It's, it's, it's almost, it's a weird kind of extension of high school and college, I would say, because you don't have that much homework. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. You can go shoot pool. You can go drinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, you're getting uh, into my list of of good things. I think I think they are good at getting you to carve out time or uh, to focus on writing. They're good at at giving people opportunities to teach to see yeah. if people like that. Um, whether it's as a graduate student assistant or as a lecturer or or uh, other ways. It's good at, uh, I think it can be beneficial for some people to really commit themselves to it and, and come out of the closet, so to speak, uh, maybe to their friends and family and, and establish themselves and say, this is something that is really important to me and it's something I want to do. And it's uh, like you're suggesting, it's good to, to just spend time in a university setting. There's other courses you can take and other disciplines and interesting people to meet. And there's a lot of time for, you know, sitting around the table with, with the beer flowing and, and talking about important things. And it is kind of an extension of college, uh, which is uh, can be a very positive thing. And then there is something good about getting that MFA. It's an actual degree. It's a thing that goes on your resume. I guess there are probably some people who have to conceal it a little bit if they go into a profession where an MFA is is, is viewed uh, as you know sort of a diversion or is not valued. But for most people, I think it's a way of, I mean, I've always found it to be an interesting line on my resume that people want to ask me about and, and they, they think it's you know a, a positive thing and it shows that I had the discipline to go get the MFA and to get accepted somewhere. And, and for a lot of people, it was something that they had maybe always wanted to do or thought about maybe doing or know someone who did. And, and it does qualify you to teach or, or pursue other things. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's an actual degree. There's some value to that. I think, I think the benefits of teaching, um, I was surprised to, to read, how many writers improved their writing improved um, yeah 
after they became faculty at different MFA programs. I thought that was an interesting little quirk. Yeah. That, you know, it, it helped their, like, I was surprised Philip Roth and John Cheever, um, Louise Gluck and mm-hmm. John Berryman, all these, all these writers and, you know, and poets who, who really got something out of, um, having to deal with student writing. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a couple of things. It, it might give you a stronger detector for the cliche or the easy thing. You know, if you read 25 stories, uh, four times a semester or whatever it is, it, you know, you get into the hundreds and hundreds of stories and you see a very common way to start a story or a, a, a common way of describing something. And it, it might sharpen your antenna for rooting out things in your own writing that would be the obvious choice or the easy choice. And the flip side to that is whether a writer would have succeeded anyway. Um, Right. Sometimes when I think of MFA programs, I I do agree that they can help you uh, concentrate and focus um, and develop skills, but the question it begs the question: Are the skills already there? Right. Know? Yeah, I, like, I heard uh, one professor when I was at the MFA program. He was talking to a friend's daughter who was thinking of applying, and and she said, "You know, do you do you think I should go to an MFA program?" And he said, "Only if you have to. Like, if you can <laughs> at all do this without going to an MFA, then go ahead and do it. But if you..." If as a last resort, and I thought, well, great, you know, here I am, like in the middle of my program. Um, but yeah. there is something to that. I mean, you know, I, if anyone can earn a living as a writer, and you know, there's certainly no reason why you need to get an MFA to learn how to write. If you're, if you're writing and you're writing well, and you're publishing what you're writing, and you're making money, and you have enough time to do it, and all of that, the MFA uh-huh. is not going to give you any secrets that you don't get when you just open up your favorite authors and just start reading. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that Junior, Junior Diaz uh, has been critical of MFA programs because he has one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've heard criticism from T. Corgassian Boyle. He he also has an MFA from Iowa, and mm-hmm. he says that the ideal MFA program would be a room that's locked and the student is in there writing stories, and there are two slots. The top slot is where the pizza goes in, <laughs> and the bottom slot is where the stories come out. <laughs> that sounds horrible. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like uh, it sounds like industrial farming or something, where you're pumping chick- chickens full of uh, <laughs> full of steroids. Instead, it's pumping writers full of pizza and, and hoping to get the uh, the end product. You know, the, the biggest thing, what it comes down to, I think, for MFAs are the things that I had in the category of maybe. And this is, this is where you're really gambling. So let's say you're going to get an MFA and you accept that, you know, it's not going to guarantee publication. And on the other hand, it is going to give me a couple of years. And you're kind of wondering, well, what what am I, what's the best I can hope for? I mean, it can maybe be a place where you get some really good advice about your writing and maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe the advice is going to be off target or maybe it's going to be more. Certainly there are a lot of people who give up writing after going to the MFA and it's probably because they didn't click with the people there and they didn't get the right advice. Um, even the professors, you know, maybe they'll give you good advice and maybe they just won't see the value in your work or they'll be off target. Um, maybe you'll find a helpful community with the people around you and maybe it'll be helpful to you to critique others and to learn how to do that. And maybe not, maybe it's, maybe you are somebody who should be in a room getting pizza shoved in through a slot. (laughs) You could probably arrange that for like, I don't know, $25,000 a year. And if you get a sponsorship from Domino's, you can probably even cut that cost down. Maybe it's an affordable way to live as a writer for a couple of years. It depends on your tuition deal. And like you said, if you're getting fellowships or, or maybe you have the money where that doesn't matter or you're saving the money where that doesn't matter. It is, you know, that's another, maybe not because they can be very expensive and it's also a way to really go into debt. And and that's not going to help a writer in the long run if they're 
if they come out of the program and they're really struggling to make ends meet and, and having to take jobs that, you know, have a lot of demands on their time and energy. And then the last thing I had was it might be a good thing that MFA programs employ writers and give them time to write. So I'm talking mm, now about the, right. the faculty and the professors, and this is really where we're getting into the impact on American letters, because I think it is a big deal that there are all of these students going out to get MFAs and all of that. But really, I think if we look at what impact is the, are, is this MFA regime having on American literature, you really have to also look at the MFA machine is employing a lot of published authors, um, mm -hmm. especially in literary fiction. And I don't blame them for taking these jobs because what else is there? There aren't patrons running around and, and literary fiction is, you know, it's like hitting the lottery to sell a book that sells enough copies where you could actually live off of it. Um, so they get a steady job, which is at the university and it, it doesn't make too many demands on their time and they're valued as an author and all of that comes with it. But there are pros and cons to that. And I don't know if you have a, an opinion on what we see from having these hundreds of authors who are all basically doing the same job around the country. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the the question of what counts as original originality. What 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 do we what do we want to see in terms of new fiction? I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a lot of people love Alice Munro, and right, she you, is she is one of the heroes of the MFA world. I would say. Yeah, and they, there's something very surprising about her fiction that. I think people can mimic her, but mm -hmm. kind of forget to forget to put the yeah. surprise in. <laughs> yeah, there's probably <laughs> a lot of bad Alice Munro imitators out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people who get an MFA have, prior to the MFA, um, either been part of informal writing groups or mm -hmm. taken uh, workshop classes. And I took a workshop class with a teacher who has since published, but at the time he was unpublished, which is, you know, just one of those pr fairly common things now mm -hmm. that a lot of people who are teaching fiction are, are not even published. Um, but he had a great exercise, which was just to take two pages of your writing and um, to hone those two pages. Mm. And I, I almost thought that that, w that was more you know, revealing than 30 pages. Right. So, because in two pages, I mean, and I, I thought that was an interesting exercise because if you take any writer you like uh, and sh photocopy two pages and show it to somebody, I think the person would say, like, I know this writer. I can't place it, but I know this writer. Right. And that's, that, and that's what everyone, you know, refers to as their voice. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of, people in the MFA programs, when they start, they don't quite know what their voice is. Right, right. They're just, it's it's hard when you're trying to write something original, but you have all these mechanics to deal with. You know, you have to, you have to put a line of dialogue in there and figure out how that's done and a description of, of a setting and figure out how that's done. And, and somehow you need to make everything flow. And, and, you know, I think, a lot of people start out writing in the first person. And I think that's probably a way of, of getting, it's like a shortcut to finding that voice. Yeah. I mean, I, I there's a novelist, David Gates that I, I, I like a lot. And he, I, and I studied with him and he says that uh, whenever my characters need to get somewhere, I just ha have them have a drink first <laughs> because it seems to add a certain kind of rhythm. And he right. says, and if they're already there, but they really should get going, you know, yeah. they, they'll usually smoke some pot. <laughs> so. I think it was, I think it was Laurie Moore's line was something like 90% of fiction is getting your characters into the car. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and I think, uh, you know, people smoking, you see that in, in fiction um, now that, now that fewer people smoke, it's taken away the sort of 
pauses for beats, you know, that just like actors yeah. would, would have used it in the fifties, say, you know, there was a lot of fiction that would use cigarettes as, you know, he stopped and lit a cigarette, he took a drag on a cigarette, he, you know, and it's a way of, of giving you that little, that little pause that once you erase that from people's toolbox, they, they had to replace it with something else. I, I was trying to think of some of the best advice I got uh, when I was getting my MFA. Um, yeah. well, one bit was a teacher said, look at your books on your shelf and see where your last name would fit if you mm. alphabetized your books. Yeah. And I was looking at my books and thinking I fall somewhere between Kafka and Kundera. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, and this this teacher was saying like, Imagine the arrogance of you guys thinking you be, you belong on these shelves. <laughs> like how ridiculous it is to like squeeze right. your name. And he said, that's what you're trying to do. That's how hard it is. One of the things I used to think is, you know, how many people do we read from a particular decade or a particular century even? Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, we might we think of the Russian authors as being this huge flourishing, but we still only read like maybe six total, right. you know, from the whole 19th century. And so if you just kind of do the math and you say that there are 2,500 MFA graduates every year and there's, you know, a thousand or something faculty mm -hmm. or what is it? 5,000 graduates per year. And there's, you know, over a thousand writers are, are teaching at these institutions and you just think, well, 50 years from now, how many mm -hmm. of the people will be read if only every generation only has five or 10 people? Um, yeah. You know, it's, you just have to kind of do the best you can and, and not let that overwhelm you. Yeah. I, I befriended a guy in my MFA program who used to, whenever we workshop somebody and he didn't like the work, he used to turn to me and say, that guy's writing isn't going to be around in 75 years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but ours will. <laughs> you and me. Not that guy, but you and me. He's like, you really think it's going to be around in 75 years? I don't think so. Maybe in a few years, but. <laughs> now here's, since we talked about what I, th I described as the typical workshop, I wanted to, to also talk about some unconventional workshops, you know, it, that model is not necessarily the best model. And, and it's pretty heavily dependent on the quality of the students around you and, and how they click with your writing. And a lot of conversations can run off the rails. I heard one story that there was a guy who was kind of long winded in his comments. And so another guy in the workshop bought a stopwatch, like an old fashioned <laughs> stopwatch. And every time the guy would start talking, this guy would pull out his stopwatch and click it with his thumb, you know, and then wow. and just watch it until the guy stopped talking and he'd click it again and he'd look at it and make a big show out of it, you know? Um, so some professors I think have, have implemented some unconventional workshops. Joyce Carol Oates, I've heard only will meet with students one-on-one. -on -one. She won't meet as a group with her, writing mm -hmm. class and students aren't reading each other's work. They're just getting her time one-on-one. -on -one. I've also heard she's kind of a, uh, a thief of her students' stories that she, <laughs> people, you know, she writes so much that people tend to find some of their best work or some of their best ideas or their best characters or the best, not that she's plagiarizing them, but she's sort of taking, she's using their life stories and, and their backgrounds as grist for her own, mill. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. And then there are some unconventional workshops. Rick Moody has an article, an essay in the Atlantic where he talks about some of his mentors and he really advocates for there being more creativity in the types of workshops and the exercises that people do. And he wants to see things kind of split wide open, which, you know, and he has some really unconventional ideas or mm -hmm. things that, you know, like, why don't you come in and, and say, you're only going to read one book that whole semester. Or why don't you do that? You know, I, I think he, I don't know. I felt a little bit like his essay, he was running out of ideas. So he came up with this idea to cap things off because I kind of thought those things, maybe they would work and maybe they wouldn't, you know, you could, for every really creative idea, you could imagine it going horribly wrong and not really helping anybody. 
the worst example I think I've heard, and this is really the only ugly story that I've thought of, is uh, Gordon Lish's workshops, which were famous for a while. Right. Gordon, Gordon Lish was the Raymond Carver's editor, and he was kind of this young editor at Esquire. And so he would go and teach these workshops. And I mean, if you're, you know, young and desperate to be published and you have an actual editor of a magazine that's actually publishing fiction, it's a yeah. real power dynamic. And it, he, it sounds to be like he kind of abused that power. There's a lot of students who will talk about what a great, you know, guru he was and how you would people would read aloud their story and he would hardly anyone made it through the first sentence before he would stop them and tell them it was no good and that he was going to just talk for the next hour about fiction that way. Some people really um, thrived in that and really enjoyed it, but it also sounds like he was kind of uh, using it to manipulate people and uh, especially female students in his class. And it just sounds like a, to me, it just sounds like a nightmare. That it was, you know, kind of a uh, the power dynamic gone bad, and I think that probably used to happen a lot, and and I suppose it probably still does, but it just seems like a really ugly scene to to get in when the professors are holding themselves above people who are maybe a little bit fragile in a fragile state, putting themselves forward with their their writing and and really uh, eager to hear words of praise from somebody who matters. And um, that's that's one of the biggest uglinesses, I think, associated with MFAs. You look at the, the number of people who publish who have MFAs, and it, it's a bit staggering, I, I have to say. I mean, I was looking at like Richard Ford, yeah. Cal Irvine, and, you know, Michael Chabon, Alice Siebold at Cal Irvine, Chang Ray Lee, David Foster Wallace, Gary Steingart. I mean, so many yeah. um, really hot, you know, literary writers have come out of MFA programs. Yeah. Now, those so. that's a pretty different, a pretty diverse group of people in their writing. Do you think there's an MFA style or an MFA uh, cookie cutter pattern or anything that you would attribute to 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 the whole generation? I yeah, I, I wanted to get to that. I I. I I find that because, you know, back to your story about eight people trying to agree on whether they like Kafka, the workshop, the problem with the workshop is, you know, writing is read in, a, you know, in, in, in solitude by one person. Normally, even if your spouse and you are reading the same book, you're usually not at the same part in the book. And so your, your, your conversations kind of go past each other and, you know, are complementary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than head on and so the workshop i think people kind of uh, reached a consensus of right. we need more rather than saying is this writing original which is sometimes i would try to turn the workshop to that focus because i i thought mm -hmm. that was a far more interesting question right you know is this is this story different from other stories mm. Um, and it's it's a harder question, but it's it's actually you know one that uh, a, a reader thinks more about, right? You know, not am I getting to know the characters in a rhythm that is convincing and persuasive? <laughs> right. It's, it's like I I read the story and does it grab me or not? Yeah, there's a way to sort of bulletproof a story, right? you can avoid risks and make it less susceptible to criticism. And especially if, you know, the writing experience is a, a solitary one by definition. And when you're writing it and delivering it to the world, the readers are going to be reading it, you know, millions of miles away from you. But it's different if you're writing and you know the eight faces who are going to be reading it and then, you will be sitting and listening to what they have to say about it. And I think it can distort your writing. Yeah. I mean, going back to the, 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 the literary landscape of this country, I think they, there definitely are shifts from, say, the Raymond Carver Hemingway style uh, minimalist fiction to 
you know, what I think Franzen calls maximalist fiction, like mm -hmm. David Foster Wallace or Zadie Smith. And I think the workshop, there tends to be this generic comment that, you know, this writing is run on and um, you've kind of lost the point. I don't know who's in the room anymore. And I right. feel like, you know, those kind of comments can be um, thrown in Zadie Smith's face. Right. You know, and, and, you know, again, it, it, what's the point if you're enjoying the story? Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, if you're submitting, you know, a single story or a single excerpt and you're anticipating the pencil marks people are going to be writing, it does kind of drive you toward a, a Raymond Carver type style of, well, let me try to make every word perfect and I'll just make, you know, I don't, I don't have time to do that for a, a hundred page excerpt, but let me just write a, a six page short story and see if I can just make something perfect and make it, yeah. you know, so exquisite. And so, well, every word in the right place and every, everything sharply drawn and every description will be original and every sentence will have, you know, interesting words and, <laughs> and right. you, you know, you, as I'm describing it, I'm thinking, you know, it really is I'm, what I'm describing is a very particular type of story. Yeah. I mean, and going to the substance of it, you know, I remember I, I had an MFA teacher who, who was great. And he said, take a look at McSweeney's website because they, they actually, I mean, you, you know, pe people, I, I, I know people who are kind of it's grading McSweeney's and, mm -hmm. and that whole group, but they, they have a very funny list of things that your fiction should not include oh, right. and should include. And, um, I think it should, it says it should include a factory <laughs> and it shouldn't include anyone backpacking <laughs> and it should right. not, and it should not include any complaints about your mom. <laughs> I, yeah, I know a, a teacher who banned a uh, story. This was, she had been, you know, teaching creative writing at this university for several years. And she, she banned stories where a guy wakes up the day after the biggest frat party of the year and tries <laughs> to remember what had happened the night before. <laughs> She's like, we've seen enough of those. I've, I've had my fill. <laughs> yeah so i mean we 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 haven't talked too much about the substance but when you were saying uh you know like chang Ray lee the Foster wallace i mean their writing is very very different and that kind of goes back to my earlier point would they would these people just have succeeded anyway yeah i mean it, you know yeah well i mean sub maybe maybe they would have been the exact same writer but maybe the mfa gave them uh, the time they needed to write or the confidence they needed to write, or it's hard to say, you know, it's, um, it's, it's hard to say, uh, exactly what someone gets out of an MFA. You look over across the, across the pond at Europe and in England now, yes, there are a fair number of MFA programs, yep. um, sprouting up, but on the continent, MFA programs are looking kind of look down upon yeah because um, the idea is well you can't teach writing you, yeah. you can't teach creative writing which is a fair point i mean i you know it's it's true like you you can't you know if you could we'd have every year we'd be graduating five thousand balzacs <laughs> you know i heard an interesting thing about an mfa program in england that martin amos was was guest a professor he was a guest professor there they were asking him, you know, well, how is it for you to read all the student work? And he said, I don't read student work. <laughs> I said, why, why would we do that? You know, and <laughs> he said, they said, well, what do you read? He said, well, sometimes I'll read something that I'm writing and usually we'll just read, you know, something else and I'll just talk about it. Like there, aren't they paying to hear me? Like why, why would I, why would, why would everyone who, who pays money for this want to hear what their fellow students have to say, like they're paying for me. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe it's just a, an intensely American thing. Maybe it, it fits our, our national character somehow. There must be some reason why these things are, 
are sprouting up and, and they don't seem to be stopping anytime soon. And would you say that overall, if I had to ask you a thumbs up or thumbs down, would you say they're a force for good or a force for bad? Um, I, I, I think if you have the money and you have the time, it, it, it's a pretty swell way spend two years <laughs> so i'm gonna say that it is a that's a sideways thumb <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's probably where i am too so let's leave it there mike the as the president of the literature literature supporters club i can't think of anyone who would be in a better position to discuss mfa programs and thank you for joining me today on the history of literature thanks for having me okay that's gonna do it for today's episode my thanks to mike as always for joining me we have some good episodes in the works the next one othello oh boy that one's a killer Aren't you jealous? I am on vacation posting these episodes through the miracle of 21st century time-traveling technology. Think of me as the sweaty, wide-eyed H.G. Wells character rapping on your door, wearing my leather jacket and aviator goggles, inviting myself into your parlor. You build a fire, and I tell you a wondrous tale. How do you make sure you hear all these wondrous tales? You subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. Then go tell all your friends that they can expect me to. I can visit everyone all at once. Like Santa. Just like Santa. Hey, speaking of Santa, happy 4th of July. Could I be more off than that? You can see my time-traveling machine has a few glitches. A doohickey where I should have installed a what's-it. All right, that's enough. Othello next week. Oh, and I almost forgot. You can find more at historyofliterature.com or jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. You can leave me a message there, or you can write me an email at jackwilsonauthor.com at gmail.com that's j-a-c-k-e wilson author at gmail.com i'm jack wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs>